Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of The Grace and Peace of God Love Wins. And right off the bat, I'm going to tell you this may need to be broken up into a couple of parts. I am home expecting a repairman today. And normally, you know, someone would say, well, you need to be editing that podcast, make it just right. But here's what I have learned over the years from really... Um, people have taught me that the lowest standard is perfection. Perfection is no standard at all. So I go with that. I don't edit my podcasts for that very reason. And it's because what you get is genuine. It's authentic. It's who I am. So with that said, friends, I want to let you know it's lovely to be here. And I'm going to start off by speaking a blessing over you and over myself as I offer us some encouragement as we maintain that we're in the presence of God, but now we're going to enter in through his gates and into his courts with thanksgiving. You know, we learn in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Simply put, we claim God's promises as yes that are ours in Christ. And you know, we're reading commentary today and supporting scriptures that surround the idea of the security of the believer and our justification by faith. So today's episode, we'll be reviewing scripture verses and their meanings that substantiate the question of can a Christian lose his or her salvation? And I've been asked that a lot. Now, this is a critical subject for one simple reason. We all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. Furthermore, our sin is justified by faith in God's son, Jesus, and not by our works. This again is supported by scripture and worthy of our exploration. So once again, friends, I'm happy you're here and joining me today as we begin to unpack what scripture teaches us. So let's get started now by looking at the security of the believer. So the topic is often described in different ways, perseverance of the saints, security of the believer, eternal security, but each phrase centers on these questions. What happens when believers sin or perhaps they backslide? Can a person's sins or failures result in the loss of salvation? Well, we do find a key coming from John chapter 10 verses 22 through 30, which talks about the security of the believer and the promise of eternal life in verse 28, Jesus says, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Jesus makes the same promise two different ways. Believers will not perish and no one can take eternal life from them. The doctrine of the believer's security does not rest just on Christ's words in this one passage. All three members of the Godhead are involved in salvation and Jesus's perfect one-time work to atone for 
all sin, is the basis for that assurance. Now, believers cannot save themselves or keep themselves saved. Only the collaborative work of God the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit can do this. The words of the Father reinforces Christ's words and work. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, and the inheritance he gives us is incorruptible and does not fade away. God assures believers that Jesus will confirm us to the end and that he is able to present us faultless in that final day. For God's purpose to be thwarted by human weakness or fickleness would make God's word dependent on human actions. Now, regarding the Spirit's confirmation, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says, Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, you know, at the end of all of my podcast episodes, I talk about you've been sealed with the cross of Jesus Christ forever. And the Holy Spirit is what seals seals that promise in for us. So Paul says the Spirit serves as a mark of permanence and security in our lives, a guarantee that the Christian's destination will not be interrupted. The protection of eternal life, Jesus's words in chapter 10 verses 28 and 29, paint a picture of believers being held in his hand. This is a tremendous image of security. And Romans chapter 8 verses 35 through 39 affirms the believer's security with a long list of things that cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Our security is not in our ability to hold on to Christ's hand, but in his ability to hold us in his. Some critics have said this doctrine is dangerous because it means that Christians can go out and live any way they want, even willfully sinning without fear of the ramifications. But anyone who treats the security of the believer as an insurance policy so they can sin without consequence probably does not know the Lord to begin with. That is simply not the heart of a born-again follower of Christ. As Paul said, if we have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Or in James's words, faith without works is dead. True faith results in a transformed life. Now, those who have truly known the forgiveness of their sins and who are in the habit of thanking God for his love will not use their forgiveness and salvation as a license to sin. True believers in Christ look for ways to please him every day, not loopholes by which to exploit their promised salvation. Then the proof of eternal life in verse 27 gave rise among Puritan theologians to the two marks of Christ's sheep. The mark on the ear, my sheep hear my voice, and the mark on the foot, they follow me. Just as cattle are branded today to identify their owner, so followers of Jesus are branded by those two traits. A true Christian is one who listens to the words of Jesus and who follows him. Practically speaking, that means when we read the word of God, a spirit of agreement and affirmation will well up in our hearts. We'll embrace what we read, not resist it. We'll affirm 
We will want to repent and seek his forgiveness. No true believer will be comfortable unless he or she is following Jesus. Now we're going to look at some specific scripture passages and see exactly what these have to say about our saving salvation. We start off in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all? And being sanctified means to be set apart or made holy. And believers are declared holy at the moment of salvation, but God also progressively sanctifies us through the Holy Spirit as we grow in our faith. And although as Christians we participate in this process of sanctification by reading and obeying the Bible, ultimately we increase in holiness through the work of God. And then Romans chapter 11 verse 29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. See, Israel was ready and eager to lay claim to its special status as a nation with God, but they were reluctant to accept a responsibility of faithful obedience to him. Yet God has given an unconditional promise to his people, and he's not going to renege on the promise. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, the world puts its hope in things that can die, be destroyed, decay, or even deteriorate. Peter is reminding us as Christians that our future is secure. It's incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, and it's reserved in heaven because our relationship with God is secure. And when I made that emphasis on the word kept, where it said, for you who are kept by the power of God, When I said that, kept means to be garrisoned by an army. These realities should enable God's people to face boldly the challenges of our every day. Worldly hope is merely wishful thinking, and it ends at the grave. But Christian hope goes beyond. It's based on a person, the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. Because Jesus overcame death, he promises us as his followers that we too shall overcome the grave. And this assurance is so firm that as Christians, we can risk our very lives on that statement. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 7 through 9 says, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, the faithfulness of the Father stands in stark contrast to the faithfulness of the Corinthians. In other words, their failure is not God's fault. 
the Corinthians built corrupt lives on the godly foundation that they were given. This tragic reality is what made their sin so overwhelming. And God wants every believer to live at the level of his or her blessing rather than building a temple of sin on the foundation of his grace and provision. Now, we touched on Ephesians chapter 113 earlier. In him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. See, when something is sealed, it's marked with the owner's name and secured as being his or her possession. God marks believers as his very own by sending his Holy Spirit. Spirit to live within us. The Holy Spirit is our seal. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. A Christian's uniqueness in the world should be apparent in his or her morality, mood, money, mouth, and manners. In John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29 say, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father is who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You see, eternal life is not something as believers that we receive when we die. No, we obtained it the moment that we showed and professed belief in Christ as our Savior. And no one will be able to snatch us out of Jesus's or the Father's hand. And then we look at Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is not talking about one's love for Christ when he speaks of the love of Christ, but instead he's talking about Christ's love for people. Christ's love is a safeguard against the difficulties of life. None of those seven threats that Paul lists can separate believers from God. According to Leon Morris, when Paul quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22, his words bring out the truth that for God's people, there is real risk and a call for real devotion. Christians might be tempted to think that because the love of Christ is so real and so unshakable, they need not fear that they will run into trouble. Scripture shows that while the love is so sure, so are troubles. Paul says we're being killed all day long. It's real and not imaginary peril that Christians face. More than conquerors is translated from the word hooper 
nikomen, which is a Greek word. And it's Nike means to overcome. Hooper means over and above. Combined, they mean over and above victory. As believers, we're super conquerors. Paul says we know and ends on a more personal note. I'm persuaded, which in the Greek perfect tense, the latter can mean I have become and I remain convinced. Knowing truth and being persuaded of it are different things. Paul knows God's truth, but because he has also experienced most of what he's writing, he says with confidence that nothing can separate him from God's love. Romans chapter 6 verse 2 says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? How can anyone die to sin? Well, Paul's talking about something already done by another, and that was Christ. It's not something that people do. In the Greek here, the verb form of died often signifies summarizing a past event from an external perspective, an event that's already passed, not an ongoing process. So then we learn in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, but now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, or in other words, excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So just as a person drunk with wine gives over control of his or her life to inebriation, so the Christian who's filled with the Spirit gives over control of his or her life to the Spirit. The command is in the present tense, which indicates that being filled with the Spirit is not a once-for-all experience, but a continuous one. And then James chapter 2 verse 26 says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And see, in Greek, spirit and breath are the same word. As the absence of human breath indicates death, so also the absence of works indicates a dead faith. John chapter 10 verse 27, John records, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And that was Jesus speaking. See, Jesus's sheep can be recognized because they hear and follow his voice. God has supplied his word, not so people will obey it out of obligation or fear, but to assure his children of their relationship with him and guide them home. We learn also in John chapter 5, verse 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. In Psalm chapter 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This brings us to Luke chapter 18, verses 11 through 14. There's a lot to unpack here, but stay with me, and I think you'll follow along and understand our salvation is secure. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, 
or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The word stood used of the Pharisee gives the impression of parading or posing so that others would see. Notice he did not pray to God or about God, but prayed with himself. This is what people who feel justified according to their own standards are left with. You see, Phariseeism is another example of the human tendency to distort a good and godly behavior, such as prayer. Often when a person condemns the sins in another, I'm not like other men, that person harbors far worse sin within. And the more scrupulous Jews fasted on the second and fifth days of the week, although some disputes remain as to how to understand the obligation to tithe, this Pharisee applied a strict interpretation to himself, making him a model of righteousness in the eyes of many. But Jesus made it clear that this was hardly the case. And Israelites despised the tax collectors of the Roman Empire, not generally allowed on the temple grounds. They stood afar off when praying to God. But this tax collector, he separated himself not because he thought he was better than anyone else, but because he did not think himself to be worthy. In the lukewarm church we read about in Revelation chapter 3 verse 17, because you say I am rich, I've become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And then Romans chapter 3 verses 21 and 22, but now the righteousness of God apart from the laws revealed, being witnessed by the laws and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and all who believe. But there's no difference. The Jews were self-righteous and the Gentiles were unrighteous. Now the righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. No one is outside the scope of God's righteousness. All fall short. And there's a bishop, Bishop Molay, who says this dramatically, the harlot, the liar, the murderer, are short of it, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you're on the crest of the Alp, but you're still as little able to touch the stars as they are. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he, who he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That comes straight out of Romans. And Galatians tells us, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the laws, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. You see, Paul repeats three times that we're justified by faith and not by works. The most dangerous heresy on earth is the emphasis on what we do for God instead of what God does for us. 
And now we're going to continue on with our commentary about justified by faith. The story of Job in some ways is the story of the human race for all of us. The difficulties of life and the imperfections of creation highlight the gulf that separates humankind from God and his perfection. Job's quest to bridge that gulf was summarized poignantly when he asked, how can a man be righteous before God? There it is, the human dilemma. How can sinful human beings be accepted by a holy God? Our natural human response to suffering or to sin is to try to undo whatever wrong may have originally caused our trouble. If we've done something that made us unrighteous in God's sight, then we think that doing the opposite should restore our righteousness if we've done wrong. Then certainly doing something good should make us right, shouldn't it? Unfortunately, scripture tells us that in God's sight, committing one sin is equivalent to committing an infinite number of them. So our good works can never make up for even one transgression. Trying to undo sin by good works is a prescription for righteousness that leaves us falling hopelessly short. Of course, God knew that we could not be justified by our own efforts, so he arranged to remove our sin himself. God gave to Israel and the world through Israel access to a temporary state of reconciliation through ongoing sacrifices as outlined in his law. The law had two purposes. First, it perpetually reminded people of God's standards and our inability to meet them. That is our inability to make ourselves righteous before God. Second, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified. As a tutor or teacher, the law revealed humanity's lack of righteousness so that when Jesus Christ came as the once and for all perfect sacrifice, our justifier by faith, Israel and the world at large would be ready to embrace him. This is a key part of Paul's letter to the Jews and Gentiles in the region of Galatia. Although these men and women had embraced the gospel of faith in Christ, they were being persuaded that their faith alone was not enough, and so they needed to add certain works of the law in order to be saved, a step backwards in their spiritual growth. Paul even had to correct the apostle Peter and the stalwart or meaning loyal, Barnabas, on this topic. Paul was direct, even blunt. I do not set aside the grace of God as you, Peter, are doing, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Why would Christ need to die for our unrighteousness if we could earn our way back to God by our own efforts? That would make his coming unnecessary. To add human works to faith would be, as Paul said, to set aside the grace of God. There's no need for grace if our good deeds could be sufficient for righteousness. In his argument against Peter and the Galatian Judaizers, Paul concludes that being justified comes only through the work of Christ and not through any human effort. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. In his commentary, The Message of Galatians, John R. W. Stott summarized justification by faith as God's act of unmerited favor by which he puts a sinner right with himself, not only pardoning or acquitting him, but accepting him and treating him as righteous. The only way we can be declared righteous is by putting our faith in God's provision. 
Jesus Christ is righteous. Amen. And friends, we're going to end with this. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. John presents three infallible witnesses to prove that Jesus is God, water, Jesus's baptism in the Jordan River. When the Father spoke from heaven, the blood, the historical death of Jesus on the cross for the sins of his people, and the spirit given to bear witness to Christ. Since the witness of humans is readily readily accepted, how much more valid should the witness of God be? People reject Jesus at their own peril. False teachers questioned whether John's readers were truly God's children. John wrote this letter that God's people might know to whom they belong, despite the persuasions of the wicked one. So friends, we are justified by faith and we will not lose our saving salvation. Now, if you have not been spiritually reborn, God made it clear to enter into the kingdom of heaven, a person must confess belief in his son, Jesus. The apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. When we place our trust in Jesus, a divine exchange takes place. Jesus takes our sin, making us right with God. Our sin was then placed on to Jesus at his creation crucifixion. His righteousness is given to us upon our conversion. And while it's true, we can never repay this extraordinary and extravagant gift of kindness back to Jesus. What we can do is show him our gratitude by growing in our relationship with him. We can make efforts to obey him, deepening our relationship daily. Today, friends, if this is you, I'm imploring you to take action now. Step out boldly in faith and conviction toward the kingdom of God by openly confessing after me. Heavenly Father, I come before you repenting of known and unknown sin in my life, meaning I'm changing my ways of thinking, acting, and showing up for life. Jesus, you're welcome to take up permanent residence as the king upon the throne of my heart. I confess your shed blood washed away my past, present, and future sin upon that cross at Calvary. Amen. Congratulations, friends. If you prayed that prayer of salvation, you were saved and born again spiritually. Your next step is to read God's word daily so he can guide, direct, and reveal himself to you through the person of the Holy Spirit. And consider growing by joining a good Bible-based church. Again, congratulations, and God bless you on making the wisest and most important decision of your lifetime. And until next time, remember you've been marked and sealed with the cross of Jesus Christ forever. And a final word from Paul given to us straight out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4 says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God bless you. Amen.